0: Hi, I'm Nick Horrocks from X.0 Advisory, and welcome to My Digital Journey, a series of podcasts about how technology continues to influence, challenge, and disrupt business. We'll hear from entrepreneurs creating online platforms, right through to adventurers using social media to develop their own personal brand. We'll also hear from people in more traditional industries about how digital is disrupting their prevailing business models and how they are looking to address these challenges. These podcasts aim to highlight the issues faced by businesses and entrepreneurs in the modern digital environment. What made them successful? What mistakes they made? How they look to the future? And how they financed those ambitions? Coming up in this episode.
1: Hello, my name is Matt Farrer uh, from Lovebuy. This is my digital journey. We got very carried away. We thought it was easy to raise money, um, and uh, it seemed reasonably easy at the time because everybody wanted to invest in dot com firms. And the reality is that the money disappeared very quickly.
0: Matt Farah, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to be part of this um, series of interviews about my digital journey. Uh, I think if you just start off just by, by introducing a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and how you come to be here today.
1: So I was probably one of the first certainly graduates to get into the digital field uh, my background I was actually classically trained as an industrial designer so that is actually designing physical projects physical objects um, anything from at the time medical gear to automobiles or cars I left university in 95 I was one of the first in the UK to do a split degree so I did something called electronic media uh, which was what it was called in 95, which was effectively uh, CD-ROM authoring. So it was when all electronic media was on CD-ROMs. That's before the internet really took off commercially. Um, and, uh, and when I left university, um, I, I, you know, growing up in stoke on trent and, and uh, thinking about starting a business there, there was only really a couple of clients. And I was able to wangle a contract with Waterford Wedgwood, worked in their design team there basically authoring CD-ROMs for them. So I did a couple of days a week for them. um, And then thought, well, this is quite interesting. Maybe I can grow a business doing this. And uh, I was very lucky to be at Staffordshire University, uh, of which they had one of the only electronic media courses in the UK at the time. And they had a great lecture team. And they had maybe 14 or 15 graduates a year doing electronic media, all of which came out with first class degrees, which was great. So it was rich pickings for me growing a business. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I grew my first CD-ROM authoring business a company called Live Information Systems in Stoke-on-Trent, um, and started off being very creative business. But over the eight years, um, we uh, we we grew that. We got a reasonable-sized team actually, about twenty people. Um, and um, and when the internet took off, so this would have been '97, suddenly clients were. All clients wanted web pages, um, but the challenge they had was that they were paying agencies to manage it themselves, so we were asked to build a piece of software that helped clients to manage their own uh, websites, and at the time, we didn't really realize what it was that we were building, but it transpired that we were building a content management system, which is, you know, everybody's got a content management system in 2019, but we built one of the first ones, uh, and that's relevant over the over the eight years that I was there, because I think that's my first introduction to raising funds. We built this product. Um, we sold it to Yamaha Motors Europe. We sold it to NEC Europe. And uh, and we th- decided that we needed to shrink wrap it. Um, we need to create a proper software application. And so we went looking for money and we found through uh, various Source's Business Angel uh, who was from based in, because I was based in Stoke, obviously, they were based in Birmingham, a guy named Jim Driscoll who uh, helped us to, um, he put some capital in and we were gonna raise some money through Offex. We all got very excited at uh, 28 years old. I thought I was gonna be a millionaire before I was 30. Um, the reality is by this time it was around 2000. So we were putting our uh, first prospectus together. As a 28-year-old, to raise money to to basically, you know, build the next Microsoft, or that's how it felt at the time, <laughs> through the software that we built. Um, very exciting. Um, we very quickly crunched through the investment that Jim had made. I think we had a ninety thousand pound stand at Internet World 2001. Remember Internet World? Yeah, there was a, there was three content management systems. There was ourselves. There was a company called Vignette, and there was another company called uh, Tridian. Um, very big businesses us businesses um anyway very exciting and then 2001 happened and um, uh, i can remember very vividly in the april um lastminute.com had just floated and uh and we were told that you know the market was um struggling um you know for for lots of reasons i think the dot com bubble as it was then called had well and truly burst you know, people were losing faith in technology businesses, certainly as investments, and um, and so we were having to. We were told you should wait until the summer and then maybe reevaluate, you know, your position and think about the value of your business, um, which we did. And then we came back and um, in September, and everybody was getting a little bit more. Um, there was a bit more buoyancy in the market. Then I mean, I, I knew nothing at all about you know stock markets so and so on. I was a designer, but hey. Um, but I remember presenting our product to two institutional investors on the 11th of September, 2001 and about halfway through the presentation, um, one of my team came in and said there was an airplane crash in New York and everybody in the room it was about 12 people filtered out and, and, uh, and went to watch these events unfold uh, from a TV in our office. And we stayed there for about four hours <clears throat> and we even saw the second plane crash into the, the world trade center and, uh, and, uh, it was shocking and really we didn't realize until the following day what that meant for our business. It really was not something we we're thinking about when you're watching this uh, shocking event unfold. But um, the long and short of it, uh, within three days we were told that we was definitely not going to raise any money. You know, the technology business literally just disappeared from the entire world. Nobody wanted to buy software at a corporate level. And uh, my team of 20 reduced very quickly to a team of three we tried to cling on to that business for a few years and, um, and uh, did so reasonably successfully. But in 2004, eventually I just walked away from that business. Cause I couldn't, I, the only people that were buying our software was public sector. What was the sort of learning? So yeah. The idea. big learning was, um, if you raise money, don't spend it all within six months. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, it really was. Um, yeah. Uh, we got very carried away. We thought it was easy to raise money um, and uh, it seemed reasonably easy, easy at the time because everybody wanted to invest in dot-com firms. And the reality is that after those six months, um, the money disappeared very quickly and without the future fundraise, there's yeah. nothing left. Sure. Um, so yeah, that was a big learning piece for me. I think probably the most important thing um, is just to kind of you know, quench your excitement with a bit of reality. Yeah. Sure. but you bounce back yeah so um kind of yeah well, I had um, I have four children um <laughs> I didn't have four children before I was at that point but uh, we had our first son so I met my now wife Victoria uh, we had um Samuel in 2004 and um it was one of the reasons I actually left my old business the company live information systems um obviously that didn't quite work out but I thought mm, you know new era yeah, you know, now a family, now a dad. I should really try something else. So um, I knew a company, um, a really cool company actually called Lightmaker, who were uh, again using a technology at the time which was called Flash, Macromedia Flash. Well, actually it was called Future Splash Animator. Um, and then Macromedia bought that. Um, and um, and what was previously quite a boring um, and pretty uncreative medium that was the internet um you know lots of spinning gifs was about as creative as it got and um you know this this product that macromedia brought the world to life again and uh, Lightmaker light were already an established business maybe about 50 people based in tunbridge wells that were winning awards for creating these amazing um websites using this product future splash animated flash and um they won, uh, they won lots of awards. They built jkrolling.com and uh, doing a lot of big games launches for EA Games. Really, really cool business, you know, at the time. And um, I knew um, the CEO and the founder of that business, um, a guy named Adrian Barrett. And um, he wanted me to move to Tunbridge Wells. So he said, oh, Matt, you know, you've done that, great, but, you know, come work for me kind of thing. And um, I thought about it for about 30 minutes and I said, I don't really think I can work for anybody you know, I'd love to start something else. So we, we hatched a plan to start Lightmaker in Manchester in 2004. So I became the MD here and we grew the business here very successfully over four years. Again, we grew it from, I think I started in, uh, in Didsbury in a, in a small office um, on my own in the uh, Regis building there. And I'd basically spend the majority of my day picking the phone up and asking if people wanted to see the cool stuff that I was doing. Telesales, as you always have to do when you start a business. Um, but after the four years, again, we'd built that to about 22 people. Um, what great sort of skill clients. sets
0: were you recruiting at that stage then?
1: Uh, so uh, predominantly web-based, Flash-based skills. Micromedia um, Flash was developing as a, as a tool any, as well. So people were building rich internet applications, they were called then, out of Flash. So really quite nice stuff. Um but I needed a, a real mix of um, kind of front-end creatives and, and I'd say creative developers, so creative engineers that had used these products, so used Macromedia products before. And so the team that we built was really a mixture of product designers, uh, was engineers, software engineers with macromedia skills and, uh, you know, front end creatives. And then, you know, the scattering of project management as well on the top of that. Um, and we built that, we did a couple of MTV awards, um, European MTV award launches, you know, where there was voting mechanisms and things like that. Manchester United.com at the time. Liberty, a lot of fashion brands we were working with, but very creative base sites. It was a great time, actually. We were doing some really good stuff, winning lots of awards, winning local awards. Um, And then the wheels started to come off again through no fault of my own. I should have learned my lesson, but we'd grown. And then 2007, 2008 happened. So um, in my opinion, not quite as bad as the dot-com crash for for technology businesses, but all the same, uh, pretty painful. Um, And then... um, in 2008, in in the summer of 2008, uh, we were working with a client in the US. I won't mention who they are. They are actually still going today, but at the time, they got into all sorts of problems around cash, and um, and they they um, we we had a contract of about fifty thousand pounds a month with them, and by month four, when they hadn't paid us our fourth month, we started to get a little bit concerned about their ability to pay us at all, and uh, it became apparent very quickly that two things were happening. The wheels were falling off the world economy uh, and certainly the wheels were falling off our ability to collect cash. And uh, it was quite a painful time. The uh, We were trying to survive, but uh, we were getting very close to, uh, to, 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 basically, I was getting very close to bankruptcy because I just couldn't fulfil... Um, I couldn't afford to pay the team and it, it was scary, scary time. Um, but, um, so I, I, I d- decided I could only do one thing really, which was to try and raise some money and, and give us a bit of a, uh, a leg up. Yeah. So uh, that was
0: the whole lightmaker business or just it, so it the whole
1: of to... maker was in, um, was in a little bit of financial yeah. pain, let's say globally. So we were up to about 10 offices at that yeah. point, San Francisco, um, Tunbridge Wells, uh, Florida, um, uh, Melbourne. So there was definite uh, cash issues across the entire business. I ran the, the team in Manchester um, and, um, and I was feeling the local pain, which was all basically personally funded by me. Um, so it was a franchise. So that was the big problem for us. In the end, I had a couple of my clients actually, so we worked with a, a financial services company called Dominion, a guy named Alex Bell, who was based out in, uh, in Lugano and Peter Gabriel. He was, a, he was a client of Lightmaker Manchester, yeah. So we were, my team was building out some, uh, some quite cool uh, text-to-image um, technology. So effectively, you type in a, um, a text string and it would give you either a, an image or a series of images back. So it was almost like emojis today, but actually far superior to emojis. It's like the VHS Betamax. Thing. We had about 14,000 images and you could basically type anything and it would come back. It would even put your head on a little stick man. So, so anyway, we were building that for Peter um, and we approached his team and, uh, and he said, oh, um, well, we can't have you going out of business in a nutshell. You know, how, how can I help? Um, without going into the detail, it was, um, it was about 10 weeks of corporate, you know, diligence, jujitsu, whatever you want to yeah. call that. It was, uh, it was fairly... Fairly frantic and stressful. And, and who
0: was handling that then, from from your side of things? Was it just you? Did you have a team who were kind of more part of the management team who were assisting? No, you? it
1: was actually myself. And I, at the time, I worked with my wife as well. Yeah. So um, Victoria was um, looking after more of the commercial yeah. side of things, collecting cash, managing the accounts. Um, but th- but that was it. Everybody else yeah. was really the creative side.
0: And in so terms. in 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 terms of yeah, that must have been quite a steep learning curve, I guess, for you to be going through that kind of process mm-hmm. with a I guess a, a more creative background mm-hmm. yeah what were, were the skill sets that kind of looking back on you wished had been in the business to help you with that process oh,
1: um, I would think I was lucky at the time because um, even though Peter was an incoming investor um, he, he had a very strong team and Tiff so a guy named Christopher Pike who was actually Tiff's CFO um, although he was on the opposite side of the table, they were very helpful in understanding through that process. Um, we also worked with, um, at the time, James Sheridan um, from Manchester. He was at Halliwell's at that particular point in time. So I trusted James. So I think it was the, the biggest challenge for me at the time wasn't necessarily the, um, the business challenges. It was more around my understanding of the legal process. And so uh, I think... Um, and I still wouldn't profess to know that inside out. Now I get a sense of what we what we went through and how to apply that strategically yeah. now because I've been through that. You
0: were, I guess your point from that is though that you were fortunate you had a good lawyer.
1: Yeah, you. very. Yeah, and and um, and actually, by the time we'd finished the transaction with Peter, we had the equivalent of five lawyers, five law companies that we're working with because of the strategy. Because we had we had one acting on behalf of Lightmaker one acting on behalf of Peter, one acting on behalf of myself and Victoria, one acting on behalf of Newco. Uh, yeah, I, I, we, it was 10 weeks and um, I would literally get up in the morning at seven. Um, we would start the day with a strategy. Uh, we would end the day with knowing that strategy isn't going to work. And I'm talking about eight in the morning until nine at night. And then we'd start again the next day. And this went on for 10 weeks. I don't think I shaved, had a haircut, eight, saw my family. It is absolutely an, um, the most intense period of my entire life a business perspective, with the backdrop of the economy as well and the media that, uh, you know, <laughs> what was it? It was the worst recession since the 1930s. So, yeah, so very challenging time. Um, and, um, you know, Peter did eventually invest. Um, and also um, a, another gentleman named Rob Noble, who was um, who also worked for Lightmaker, who was running the San Francisco office his office was also, uh, was under increasing pressure because of the financial situation. So he's uh, originally English, so he flew back to the UK and um, and so he joined sometime after um, that he moved back uh, as well from uh, from there and we started Great Fridays with Peter. So it was originally myself and Peter and then Rob joined, uh, Rob joined later. And how many people were in the business at that stage? Uh, we we tupied over about seventeen people, so we lost a couple, yeah. um, but we went through a couple of months where you know we were having to manage people whether they were going to get paid or not. Yeah. And bearing in mind it was December, I think um, back to the positive side. Um, that's the business side, but we we also recognised that there was a quite a big shift in uh, you know obviously running a service business as I'd done for many years. Clients were definitely becoming more uh, focused on not just building what I would say, shiny websites, you know, things that look great and won awards, which they kind of went through a phase of doing in kind of late nineties, early, early two thousands. Clients started to understand that actually there was users out there. And the more that they could understand users, the more effective their websites would be. And, um, and that appreciation was really powerful for me because as an industrial designer, you know, I would always start with the end user needs. And, uh, and understand what they are, and then apply those to whichever product and service we're building. So, because the clients were maturing, um, we felt that the proposition for Great Fridays could be a little different than maybe other agencies before. So, we started to focus very sharply on um, on a very user centred business, which is what Great Fridays was always meant to be at the beginning. So, really, less about you know the shiny front end and more about how can we really provide insight and understanding for our clients and validate the user, the end user. Yeah. And who were
0: your clients then? Who, 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 uh,
1: the-, the the first 12 months was really quite challenging because um, a lot of our clients uh, or a lot of my clients that I'd had for the previous four years were retailers. So we were doing lots of work with um, Habitat, for instance, and they went out of business. Uh, We were working with um, Liberty and they were struggling. So all the big retailers kind of struggled along. Um, But by 2000, so we had predominantly, so MTV we carried over. um, Some of the big retailers like Habitat, Liberty we carried over. Uh, We were doing smaller projects with Samsung, very small projects. Um, And it really wasn't until, so 2009 I'd say we could have gone out of business another three times over that period, because it was still very choppy waters in in, in the economy. And
0: I suppose, just what you've said, you know, you must have had very understanding investors on board who
1: really understood the business, would that be fair to say? I'd say that we had a great team, the board at Great Fridays, we were always very lucky from day one that we had uh, what I think is required in any board, which was a really good balance of skills. Um, we used to call it the atom because we'd got like positron, neutron, electron. You, know, you need really negative people, you need neutral people and you need really positive people on the board. Mm-hmm. So uh, how many were on the board? It's interesting. Only like, four, yes. yeah. So who, so who was that? that, so, was that? Um, so for representing Peter, Peter didn't, he showed up occasionally for the board meetings if he wasn't flying around the world, uh, you know, being a rock legend. Um, so we had um, Mike Lodge, uh, who was Peter's CEO and Tiff, who was the CFO. And then there was myself um, and Rob Noble. And then we had a a non-exec called um, Andy Wood at the time. So five of us to begin with. Andy stuck around for about 12 months before he moved on. Um, And then the four of us. And and what
0: was the background of your non-exec? I guess it's very important. A lot of people maybe listening to this will go, I'm thinking of getting a non-exec on board. What sort of skill sets did your non-exec bring that were sort of really valuable to what you were trying to do?
1: Because all three were um, not necessarily full-time. So Tiff, Mike, and Andy were all effectively non-executives. It just happened that they were representing Peter. And they all had very different backgrounds. So I think, um, uh, I mean, I have a a few non-exec positions now myself. Um, And I think what you're really looking for is a mixture of somebody that's grown businesses, depending on your aspirations. So somebody that's grown a business, maybe with a view to exit is one set of skills. Uh, Somebody that's uh, maybe uh, grown through uh, very strong business development capabilities, which is another key topic. And then the other is really financial structure and control. Um, And I, I wrap, so our CFO was great because he did contractual work, he did all the financial work. And to an extent, he would be certainly keeping abreast of hiring and so on. So I would always suggest you know, depending on the business, um, you know that you would you would consider the area that you need the help the most because they're, they're not one person. Um, if you're looking to exit a business, or if your aspiration is to exit a business, then go find somebody that's done that. Um, and and all of the, uh, the, the you know the, the challenges. If you're looking for global expansion, or or growing into the U.S., then go and find somebody that's done that before. Um, if you want to raise money. A CFO is a good person to have to start put the structure in to do so and also we we had the executive board they would show up every month uh, with the non-executives the board meetings um, and we also had uh, what we call an advisory board so we had several um, people that joined our advisory board and, and they were really uh, or their um, perspective was valued because of their industry knowledge so they you know we had people like Peter Skillman who was the head of design at Nokia and um, we had a lady called Genevieve Shaw, who was the CIO of Pearson globally. And it was good because they would give you a client perspective, right? So they, they would say, if you presented a proposition, they would say, this is rubbish. We don't need this. But you always try and collect that from customers anyway. But it was good to hear that from somebody that was actually being paid to give you yeah. that. Sorry, carrying on with you. Yeah, the so Great, great, Friday story so great Fridays. Um, it wasn't really until 2010. So we'd been in business for about 16 months before, I'd say that we had a really well-shaped proposition. Um, you know, we'd got we'd, um, we'd been trying to deliver client work, maybe aspirational client work with the wrong team mix. So we'd acquired a team, well, we're not acquired, but we tuppered our team over from Lightmaker. But the skills needed to deliver to our new proposition were slightly different. And it took us a while to, uh, to start bringing the people in to enable us to deliver that. Um, and we had a really interesting moment. I mean, you know, it was still a very challenging time. The economy hadn't really, you know, picked its pants up completely. It was still struggling along a little bit. Um, but we had a, an away day. So we brought somebody in and we ran a strategic day. So we took everybody off site. And the focus really was on how we get out, how we put our proposition together, how we bring all of our team together to be strategically um vested in what we were trying to do because we wanted people to feel excited not beat about the business and it was a really important day because everybody could contribute to to our our um our future proposition uh and we came up with this concept of guiding principles as well which was what you know what makes us different than other businesses and we wanted everybody to contribute to that you know because the market was reasonably cluttered the digital market at that particular time so it wasn't just good enough that we built another agency we wanted to build something that actually was different um, the great thing about that day uh, was that you know Rob and I you know stood up and said we want to be amongst the best in the world that was the first thing um, you know when there was 15 16 you know People from Manchester who were saying, you know, we're just happy to win big chip awards, you know, get a nice pat on the back. And we were like, and that's not really good enough for us. We want to be, you know, global. We want to have a reputation globally. And actually, we're less interested in Manchester. So it was good because we all talked about that and what that meant. So there was a big vision that came out of that day. Um, but we also came up with some guiding principles, And if I can remember them. There was, um, you know, remember to have fun was definitely in there. Why would you work without having some fun? Um, create differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen twice as much as you talk, which, you know, listening to me drone on now is obviously... No, this, is all, this is all <laughs> useful stuff though. You're passing um, on the wisdom. Listen, listen twice as yeah. much as you talk. Don't hold back. Be honest and open. Mm-hmm. And Be proud of what you do. They were the five things. And everybody contributed. And the, And it sounds strange, but that made a huge difference. We had a, a couple of pitches... Maybe three or four weeks after that, one was to Vodafone in the UK, and one was to Adobe in the US. So we were we were getting the opportunities, and I I remember writing a proposal for Vodafone, and um, you know Rob and I looked at it and said, you know, this isn't really creating differently, is it? You know, so we just put it in the bin, (laughs) and we got the team together and said, how can we, how can we basically live up to our principles now and do this differently? Uh, And we came up with this concept of doing this. Rather than doing a proposal, we did this great big wall chart, which was a visualization of, of the project, basically everything from the team that were working on it to the uh, the actual process of delivering the end project and it was just a beautifully crafted um, wall chart. Uh, anyway, we won the, we won the gig. and I remember Rob and I jumping up and down in celebration because it really felt that we'd turned a corner. It felt that you know we'd done a lot of work up to that point and, and built a proposition. And then a week later, we won the Adobe gig. Like literally, uh, you, you couldn't make it up. It was like, oh, okay, we're onto something here. Um, and so we continued in that vein, and we grew the business, you know, solidly off the back of that strategic day. We had to fine tune our proposition mainly because you know our competitors were nipping at our heels. So every every time they started to borrow our language, yeah. you know, we'd uh, we'd change our language, um, and we did that successfully. Uh, over the six years.
0: I mean, what's
1: interesting is you were a
0: relatively small company mm-hmm. at the time, and Vodafone and Adobe, both enormous companies. What did you bring to them as a very small company mm-hmm. that that they clearly didn't have or clearly really wanted?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably the same is true today, to be honest. I think that um, most large organisations, they will, uh, they'll, they're cyclical, so they'll insource their teams and then they'll outsource their teams and then they'll maybe go through an outsource strategy where they only want to work with the big providers like the Accenture's or the IBM's or the, you know, the cognizance or whatever. Um, and then they'll bring it back internally again but i think the one dynamic that never changes with that cyclical thinking is that they always feel that they want to work with dynamic small agencies that are capable of you know turning on a sixpence or bringing and attracting the most innovative minds into cool little groups that do cool things it doesn't matter how hard they try as a corporate to attract that talent they'll be, they'll be reasonably successful but they certainly won't be able to build enough Teams to be able to deliver their corporate need, so there'll always be a requirement for an agency, and they'll always be looking for small, innovative agencies that are doing cool stuff. And and really, we built our reputation by doing that, you know, over the seven years, not just in the UK but also in the states.
0: So you talked about you argue, yeah, saying we are a we were a cool place to be. Mm-hmm. How did you? I mean, was that the spiel you gave to attract staff? How did how did you go about? Getting the
1: right staff to join you in Manchester, which They're is going to work with me, Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I um within the within this field, you know, um, most good talent wants to work where there's a vision um, and an aspiration to become something. Um, that's first and foremost. Then they want to see that you're working with cool clients. You know, um, they ultimately are driven by you know having good things telling their mates about awesome products that they're about to launch for PayPal or for um you know for the BBC or for Mastercard or whoever that is um and then and then you know thirdly you know you need to build a culture to attract them so they remember to have fun you know we certainly lived by that yeah. um you know our christmas parties were legendary yeah and uh, you know that gets out but, and i think that's that's that's
0: and that's really interesting because Touching on culture in a dynamic digital environment mm-hmm. and creating that must be extremely important. You know, obviously, you mentioned Christmas parties. Or any other things that you kind of did to say this is the place to be? Yeah, this is why we're the best.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, all the time. Um, you know, we would always try and do out of work activities yeah. um, whenever possible. Um, without them seem, seeming false as well, uh, we'd always. I mean, you know, Great Fridays, we tried desperately to give the team as much time on a Friday not to work on client. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the end, we compromised with our CFO and we we just uh, took Friday afternoons off and did our own thing. And so it was important that we weren't seen to be always working or working flat out with clients all the time. Um, and, and so Friday afternoons were a key part. We always had Friday lunches. We we're always free, so we'd get a GBK in or a you know Pizza Express or whatever. Um, that was really important. Everybody would go out for a drink after work. You know, we had teams in London and San Francisco as well. And um, you know, London culture was always about having a drink after work, um, pretty much every night. <laughs> That's how that works. Um, and and uh, the US obviously were a very different culture in San Francisco. But it was, it, was, it was also about empowering people. So we tried not to have a you know, super hierarchy, as flat a structure as you can possibly get. I mean, you need some structure. I think the, the challenge is always balancing a culture with a commercial business. You know, so uh, if you push people too hard, they'll leave. You, know, you might be making a 20% profit for a while, but you know, you'll suddenly find yourself with a 25% attrition rate. Um, so it's a balance really, um, you know, making a good enough profit so that when people come and ask for salary increases, you can give them to them. You need a profit versus, you know, a lifestyle and a culture that they enjoy working in.
0: In terms of obviously the journey continued and you grew the business yep. very successfully, uh, but then you sold the business. Mm-hmm. So what, what led up to that decision making process? Mm-hmm. How did you go about that? What was the sort of the thinking that was going on?
1: Obviously, in anybody's uh, life, there's not just work pressures. I was up to my fourth child at that point and um, and a very uh, understanding wife. So I was traveling around the world, spent a lot of time on an airplane, either in the US or in Europe or whatever. I'd say at least a week, a month, uh, and then traveling around the offices. But I think the key driver was we wanted to, we were looking at growing the business, actually. We started to look at private equity and and uh, and whether we could grow that and emulate um, maybe what fjord had done so you know they took on money and they grew very aggressively over three four years before they eventually sold out and that was our strategy in 2000 and um what year was it 2013 14 it was really to raise some capital um and the main driver for that um was you know i'd run businesses for 20 years and the challenge when running your own business is you tend not to put any money away for a pension or anything later in life. You tend to risk everything. And that's great. Whilst it's just you and maybe a small family, but when your family are, are growing, you know, the big motivation for me was that I needed to take some money off the table if I was going to continue the same level of risk. Um, so we started to, we approach private equity businesses and that was really our primary focus was to grow the business, but to take some money off the table. The reality is, at the time, um, it was very difficult to make that work, the money off the table versus the risk versus the loss of control or the fear of loss of control. was quite high. And And uh, that's
0: what private equity were proposing, really. You you were not going to have enough control.
1: Well, it was certainly a risk. I mean, we we were never able to validate that concern, but that was the risk. That was a perceived risk. Um, And when... A couple of our existing clients plus um, a few new ones came knocking on the door saying, well, why don't you just sell it now? You know, all these design agencies are selling. So why don't you do that? We said, oh, okay, then let's just explore selling the business now. We might be surprised. And and ultimately we were, um, you know, we were made a couple of offers that we were very flattered with. And and when you apply that to, well, I'm only 43 at the time. I can always do this again. And, um, you know, this will Financial, give me financial security for the rest of my life kind of makes sense to just take the deal um, so which is what we did I don't re- I don't regret it because um, it's a shame that we didn't see Great Fridays grow into something even bigger um, but equally we had a, a whole set of new experiences in the corporate corporation that bought us and as I said you know I, I've been very lucky that uh, I can my kids will be educated I don't have a mortgage I have some money put aside to start other businesses, invest in other businesses. So, yeah, the world has changed. Um, But the motivation was family. So you got bought by
0: a business called EPAM. Mm -hmm. um, And you stayed with EPAM for a period of time? Three years. Three years. And how did you find that? Because that's really, that's very interesting for an entrepreneur like yourself, who's basically always run his own business, Uh to then find themselves part of what? Is effectively just a, it is a large corporate. Mm-hmm. How did you find that transition? Because it's it's not unusual in the M and A market that you know whoever sells a business is generally obliged to stay for a period of time.
1: Yeah. So we were um, our, our earnout was relatively short. It was mm-hmm. only six months. Yeah. Part part of our deal was uh, was stock, mm-hmm. um, and the EPAM stock notoriously has done very well and continues to do very well. In fact. I think it was 41 when we got it way back. I think it's about 174 now or something. So um, that was a big reason to stick around. And it was new. I, 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 was, I was quite excited about jo- joining a corporate, actually, as big as EPAM. Um, we certainly, um, Rob and I, and the other execs, actually, and this management team, um, were, um, we were certainly excited about um, joining a business that at the time was about 20,000 people growing very quickly and we were able we we I was also excited about reporting effectively directly into the CEO of that business so all the businesses that we'd spoken to we were layered down we spoke to WPP we spoke to uh, future brands and we were slightly concerned that we would be you know several layers down so we're excited about EPAM the, the big challenges really for me was that um, you know it a clash of cultures first and foremost You know, you build a creative brand, a design brand that's that's used to being very innovative. And I think the key word for us was we were also agnostic. So we wouldn't go in with any preconceptions about what our strategy would lead to. We would go in saying, okay, well, let's listen to what your key users, your end user needs are. And then we'll figure out what you need to deliver for them. Um, and it felt like we would be given the flexibility in EPAM to do that. The reality is, after about three or four months of being in there, it was pretty obvious that we were, um, that wasn't going to happen because, you know, EPAM build effectively solutions and, and they're very good and very successful at building solutions. I don't think necessarily it was a cultural misfit to begin with. It was certainly a, an approach misalignment. You know, we would go in and say, well, we're not necessarily interested in which platform it's going to be, as long as it's the right one to deliver the customer. Whereas, you know, the teams that we were put with in EPAM, with the digital teams at EPAM, were used to selling certain solutions and always wanted us to arrive at that solution, which was kind of a bit uncomfortable. So we had, um, it was very challenging in the first few years um, to do that. And, And I lost um, probably at 49%. I think it was 49%. So might as well be 50%, hadn't it? <laughs> I know the exact attrition numbers, scary. We lost a lot of our team because they were unhappy with being led down a solution path. Um, seeing what you've built up, effectively taken down over a period of time through no fault of your own. And as much as I, uh, I tried to defend the acquisition. I wanted to protect the value. You know, why would you spend so much money and then effectively I was trying to put, stop them from breaking it apart because I kind of knew what would happen. Um, I kicked against that furiously for about eighteen months, and then decided this was kind of futile. So, the best thing I can do is try and apply myself to build something else in this new framework, which is what we started to do. So, we went through. There's a very well published curve, I think, um, and I. I, I can't for the life of me think about the descriptions, but it's basically like the bottom of a valley. You know, you start off by, you're on a pretty level, quite excited and then slowly it dawns on you that, you know, the company that you built and loved has been broken apart and then slowly you get through that and you start to come out the other end because you think, well, I need to apply myself. There's nothing I can do. So I think I think the last 18 months, the first 18 months were very painful seeing what I'd built, taken apart. Um, and then I just rolled my sleeves up as did a lot of my team. And we went to kind of support the executives and say, okay, what can we do here? How can we support you? What, how can we apply our skills and worked more collaboratively? I think partially some of the early mistakes were ours as well in terms of that challenge to integrate. And we, uh, we recognised that and we embraced it. Um, and by the end of it, after the, kind of year three. So this would be December, November, December 2017. You know, we've got some great case studies. Um, we'd really pushed. We recognized how big we were when we were acquired. Uh, you know, I think we have 72 people out of 20,000 is a pretty small group. Um, and we focused squarely on uh, wealth management and disrupting wealth management um, within banking financial services for EPAM. Did a lot of thought leadership for them. Put a lot of collateral together went out and pitched and, and over the three years you know looking back we had a lot of success so one of the one of the last clients i worked on before i left was schroeder's for instance and we were able to really disrupt their business because f- for the first time we were able to bring that creative strategic thinking with our ability to deliver and i was heavily involved with that project myself i wanted to see that through um uh, and, and that was a, that is and continues to be a good success for the business. And there's probably other examples. Um, I moved myself into the senior management team. So I started to push strategically the UK strategy as apart from Great Fridays. Um, so there was myself and four other uh, senior execs within the UK that were, that were really working on the future strategy work. Um, so in the end, it was great. And I don't have any regrets. I learned a hell of a lot in that corporate environment, um, you know, built a whole raft of new skills and, uh, and worked with some great people. But we definitely had to evolve. So coming on to what you're doing now. Yes. So you left EPAM. Yes. And you've set
0: up your own projects, really, with businesses, projects. Yeah. Do you want
1: to say yeah. a little bit about those? Yeah. So the, f- the first thing I needed to do is just spend some time with my family. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. yeah,
0: fair enough. Project number
1: one. Yeah, so yeah. I left EPAM um, in January 2018 and then um, went traveling. So we took the kids, they went to Australia for eight weeks and and uh, we said, right, this, this year is all about dad really because I'd neglected, uh, you know, my primary role uh, in life, um, which was amazing. And I, you know, it was the best year and I just happened to pick the most, you know, the best summer since 1976. So I spent a lot of time outside. Um, but it was great and I didn't miss work at all. Um, and then by the summer I started to get itchy feet. Um, so I, I found a couple of non-exec positions, which were great. So I, um, I was working with three uh, businesses with various aspirations, some to, to, to exit the business. Uh, one, one that I was working with in London and continue to work with um, were, were, uh, were building their own product and wanted to separate that out into a new co. So I helped a lot with that. Uh, one of the others was just trying to build a design team so that was great you know one two days a month um and i could still kind of chill out at home with the kids that was good um the big driver last year was came from not not really my own personal motivations but was um was a bit of an event that happened in the family so my um my youngest son jacob who was 12 at the time we're in australia he collapsed um having been ill for 10 days. Um, and uh, he, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes. So he was very ill, he was in intensive care for a while. So by the summer, you know, having uh, gone through that fairly stressful family situation and managing him, um, and then trying to think about what my next business venture was, it made a lot of sense to try and impact on, on type one globally. So I spent the last 12 months immersing myself in that world. Um, and and my primary role is to is to launch product and service within that. So, we've uh, we've been developing a product for adolescents within type one globally. So there's 42 million people with type one diabetes globally. About 1.2 million of those are, are children below the age of 19, uh, and we're developing product and service along the journey. Obviously, you know to build a team to be able to deliver. That um, you look around and you say, right, who can help me on this journey? Um, and um, and you know, I found myself stumbling upon <laughs> an agency acquisition in January this year. So it definitely wasn't planned, uh, but it felt right at the time. In that, um, I know a couple of the guys here that used to work for me, and uh, they they to be honest, they got into a bit of a pickle at the end of last year and uh and so i said look i can help you out you know you can help me because i'm building this product and uh and it seemed like the timing was right so i now find myself you know developing a product and um of which i've invested myself to date and i've now i'm now very much you know business plan in hand that has taken me six months to write and i'm now going through the usual networks to raise money for for what could be a, a, a fairly interesting medical intelligence platform.
0: So, 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 so yeah. What is the product, just so are Yeah.
1: So, in a nutshell, the um, management of type one diabetes is quite complex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to measure your blood sugar constantly, and you have to balance any consumption of food with um, insulin. You know, having lived that and seen the complexities of that, and knowing, you know, the support a child needs um, to to manage that. You know, as parents, we always have to be there when he's making decisions. And um, whilst that's great for us, because we're a reasonably well-connected family, you know, for others who don't have the um, the time, um, you know, single-parent families, or, or they don't have the, um, maybe the ability to to calculate some of the, some of those very difficult ratios, um, we're building products, an intelligent product to, to help with that process so in, in effect it's um a companion for t1s um that can help them to um understand and, and define their ongoing uh, insulin ratios uh, so it's a raft of complexities um, i have data science team i have a technology team i have a, a legal and compliance team i have a end user behavioral team you know you name it um it's a brand new learning curve i've never launched a product before and uh, well, fantastic. Like, yeah. best, best of luck with that. Thank you. Final question then.
0: Um, hopefully that there'll be some aspiring entrepreneurs who listen to this. What advice would you give to those aspiring entrepreneurs as someone that's done
1: it more than once? I was guilty when I was younger of giving up, maybe a little bit too early. I mean, I never gave up, but there's a few paths that I could have followed that if I'd have had a little bit more confidence at the time, maybe I would have gone in an even more successful direction. So I would say that, you know, if I was to talk to my 16-year-old self, which people always say, don't they? I'd say, you know, believe in yourself. You know, coming from Stoke-on-Trent, it was always a bit of a challenge for me to believe in myself. And it took took me 30 years to believe in myself. (laughs) Um, So definitely believe in your ideas. Always, always seek advice. Don't be afraid of going and asking people what they think of your idea I think so many businesses now, they um, spend a lot of time thinking about it in their own little bubble. And, um, and ultimately, before they know it, they're 12 months, 18 months, and they've made some mistakes and maybe spent a lot of money, um, you know, it as early as you can, whether it's on your own customer or whether it's with other business leaders. Um, be careful around seeking advice from family because they'll always tell you they're great. Um, so definitely seek advice outside of that if you possibly can yeah and the other cliches you know go for it i have no regrets i think uh, i've been very lucky uh, in the people and the team that have been able to build i've been very lucky in the partners that i've worked with uh, i i struggle to work without a co-founder as well i think that's kind of important in that um, you need somebody that can tell you you're wrong and vice versa
0: matt farrah thank you very much no for problem. sharing your digital journey with us thank that's you, you some of it thanks very much well. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Horrocks from X.0 Advisory. Make sure you subscribe for the latest episode of My Digital Journey.